You're listening to another life-transforming message from Awakened Church with campuses in San Diego and Salt Lake City. To find out more about us, go to awakenedchurch.com. Well, I'm going to start with a Bible quiz, and I want you to keep track. I'm going to say off 10 names, and I want you to keep track of how many of the names from the Bible that you recognize, okay? 10 fingers, 10 names, and you keep track. Are you ready to go? Here we go. Number one, Shamua. Number two, Shaphat. Egal, Palti, how are we doing? Pretty quiet out there. Gadil, Gadi, Amil, Sether, Nob, and Ghoul. That's 10. How many knew all 10? Okay, not, I thought this was a Bible church here. What's going on here? Well, what's going wrong? Why didn't you know these names? These are 10 names from the Bible. And, and, and most of you didn't know any of them. You know why? Because these are the 10 spies who came back with a crummy report. You shouldn't know about them. They're a bunch of losers. Never study the losers, study the winners. I did not name two other names who were spies. And their names were? And Joshua and Caleb. Do you know about them? Those are the winners. Those are the ones that heard from God. Those are the ones, that was a minority report. We talk about them as if they're heroes, and they are. But do you think they were heroes then when 10 people came back with a report contrary? Do you know how unpopular it was to be Joshua and Caleb at that time? You know the smirks, the laughing at them, the mocking at them, the cynicism, Joshua and Caleb. 10 guys, we have the truth. Those two guys, what a bunch of losers. But history showed they were on God's side and they're the winners. And I'm calling you in this sermon, let me be candid, to be a Joshua and Caleb. That means you may not be real popular on some of the things I'm going to call you to. But you'll be vindicated at some point. Joshua and Caleb certainly were. I'm going to take you to a scripture, Psalm 11, verse 3. Remember our mission? I'm calling you to be a Joshua and Caleb. It ain't necessarily fun at the time. Uh, Psalm 11, 3. When the foundations are being destroyed, what are the righteous to do? Rewind. When the foundations are being destroyed, what are the righteous to do? I've asked questions at pastors' conferences when I speak there, and I ask this question to pastors. How many of you are pastoring a community that is more righteous today than it was 25 years ago? I've never had a pastor raise a hand. If I were to ask you, is, is, is our community more righteous than it was in 2019? I doubt if I'd have any takers. Or the last five years, or 10 years. I don't know how old you are, but if I said, in the last 10 years, have you seen your community become more righteous? There'd be very few hands raised. When the foundations are being destroyed, what are the righteous to do? That's the question we're going to answer right now. This book right here, the Bible, this book, everyone knows that it covers all the issues of our personal and our private life. No one, no one challenges that. Everyone knows it covers every aspect of family life and our marriage and our, our parenting. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows that it covers and speaks to the issues of congregational or church life. Everybody gets that. But I would say that 99.9% .9 of Christians across America do not realize this Bible speaks to the issue of government, civil government, specifically how our communities and how our nation is supposed to function. Very few seem to get that. God is the one who invented government. It's God who established nations. And to the extent, now catch this, to the extent that a government or community leadership or state leadership will follow the precepts or the biblical principles of governance in the Bible. To that same extent, we will reduce human pain, suffering, and poverty. Yes. To the same extent, we violate 
the ways of the book, we will increase and enhance human pain, suffering, and poverty. This book contains economic principles of how a nation is supposed to function. And when they violate it, they pay a dear price and they lose their opportunity for prosperity. Let me give you some good news and bad news. 90% of pastors agree with what I just said. According to George Barna, he's the most famous pollster. He's the most quoted living Christian alive, George Barna. And George Barna says in polls that were done, 90% of pastors agree that the Bible speaks to the cultural, social, political issues of the day. But in that same survey, when asked, have you preached on those or will you preach on what the Bible says to the cultural, social, political issue of the day? 90% of the pastors said, no, we have, and no, we will not. Wow. Why? Because when pastors do, let me be blunt. When pastors do, some people get upset. They leave the church. They take off and take their tithe checks with them. And there are few pastors on earth that are courageous enough to still proclaim the truth, even if some people get upset with them. A few. Let me give you a, a quick stats. 364,000 places of worship in America. 364,000. Of those 364,000, let's take out all those that are uh, Muslim, Buddhist, uh, Hindu, Sikh. And so that, that moves about 20,000 out. Now let's take the member of Roman Catholic churches. There's about 25,000 Catholic churches in America. Let's move those out. Now we're down to 320,000. Of the 320,000 Protestant, non-Catholic Christian churches in America, what percentage of those, by definition, consider themselves Bible-believing, Bible-practicing? Well, I got bad news for you. 72% say they are not. So that just took out a huge chunk. So now we're down to 28%. We're down to 100,000. There's about 100,000 churches in America, by self-definition, in surveys, actually it would adhere to the fact that they believe the Scripture to be, the Bible to be the Word of God, and they teach accordingly to the Word of God. That's 100,000. That sounds like good news, but let me kind of rain on our parade one more time. What percentage of those have a distinct biblical worldview? Now, what is a biblical worldview? A biblical worldview means that I apply the scripture, biblical applicationalism, I call it. We apply the scripture to every aspect of life. Every, and they get it. It flies to personal life, family life, church life, civil governance, every issue of life, God's word, God is so loving. He cares so much. He put a book together to tell us how to make this thing work. Whether it's personally, privately, in our home, in our church, or in our government, he's that loving. So how many churches of the 100,000 have a distinct biblical worldview? The number's about 10,000. The number's dropped a lot. You're a part of a church like that. You better be thankful you have a church that stands for these kind of truths. I'm asking you to be a Joshua and Caleb. You're already seeing you're a Joshua and Caleb church already by virtue of what I've just covered. Now, what about, I've been talking about surveys of the pastors, surveys of the churches. What about surveys of the people in the pew, in the chairs? A morning, a, a, a surveys of lay people across America came up with this conclusion. We don't speak out on the issues. We're silent on the issues. When asked why, I thought the survey would say, we're silent on the issues because we're afraid. We're scared. We're afraid of being called intolerant. We're afraid of being called homophobe, transphobe, Islamophobe, uh, xenophobe, some phobe. We're afraid of being phobed, and so we don't talk on the issues. But that's not what the survey showed. The survey showed this. Lay people speaking out on a pew, uh, uh, on the, from the pew on a, a master survey, they said we do not speak out on the issues because we do not know what to say. Wow. Wow. 
When I read that, something exploded in me. And as a result, I wrote a book called Well Versed, laying out the biblical underpinnings of biblical foundations of 30 different political topics. I had 12 more, but I had to cut those chapters out. The book, book was too big. And so uh, they made me cut it out. Bottom line, I covered 30 different political topics. Your, your, your God is so good. This word is so good that he has laid out for us, if we will take the time to understand his word, what the Bible says, the government is how it's supposed to function to bring peace and tranquility and to bring harmony and to bring prosperity to our nation. When you see nations in chaos, when you see nations in tumult, it's because they're violating this right here. The government, according to Isaiah 9, 6, is on his shoulders. It's on Jesus, on the Messiah. And so I put this book together, laying out, what, what does God say about taxation? You, most of you pay taxes. Okay, what's it say about taxation? What's it say about immigration? That's a hot issue. What about social security? What about minimum wage? What about healthcare? What about welfare? What about abortion? What about marriage? What about racism? What about, you name the topic, God's word has specific things for us. God is so loving, so good. He put this and he intends for us to follow it in every arena of our life, including our national, governmental, and our political life. Let me, I want to offer this book. They have them available back there. If you buy one, you get a reduced price. But I want to make a, a deal to you. I want to get this word out. I will offer it at my cost with no profit if you'll buy a case of 24. Make it up. Because I'm not into the profit. I'm into trying to save the republic. And so we'll offer it. There's 24 in a case. It's roughly five bucks a book. We'll offer them her case for my problem, my actual cost, the author's discount that I'm able to get, get it out for. And if you buy one, we'll throw in two books put into one I wrote on the topic of heaven, by the way. Uh, I wrote two books on that, and they put it into one, one book. We'll give that, let's give that as a freebie to you if you, if you, want, to, if you want to get that. I, I was talking to a pastor friend. I'll call him Bill. Not my real. He's, he's my friend. Uh, Bill stands taller than me. He, I pastored a large church at the time, but he pastored a much larger church. And we were talking one day. And Bill looked down at me, looked down on me both physically because he's taller and condescendingly because he figuratively was looking down on me when he said this kind of a snide remark, Jim, I'm not political like you. I says, Bill, my problem with you is not that you're not political. My problem with you is you're not biblical. I said, I said let, me, let me explain. Let me explain. If I were a slave owned by a slave owner in the South in 1860, and my slave owner was going to go to Bill's church or Jim's church, which one would I want him to go to? The answer is Jim's church, because Jim will address the sin of racism in the form of slavery and try to put a stop to it and get that person set free. Or if I were a baby in the womb of a 14-year-old girl who lived near Planned Parenthood, would I want that girl to go to that place, to, to, to Bill's church or to Jim's church? The answer is Jim's church, because Jim will address the sin of abortion, try to save the baby, help the young girl, and cause him to be able to live. <clears throat> and I say that, by the way, as one who adopted four children, my late wife and I, my first wife died of cancer a number of years ago, uh, as one who adopted four children, uh, two by their own definition regarded as special needs, and one, by the way, who was conceived as a result of not just rape, but a gang rape. And I had the privilege of raising four wonderful children that were adopted through that. 
Let me tell you, how many of you know the phrase, I've heard the phrase in your life, probably everybody has, separation of church and state. Raise your hand. Okay, I want you, I want you to vote on this. How many think that's, how many believe it's in the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution? Which is it in? Uh, Declaration of Independence or the Constitution or both or neither? How many think it's in the Declaration of Independence? Raise your hand real quickly. How many think the Constitution? Real quickly. How many think it's in both real quickly? How many think it's neither real quickly? How many didn't vote because you were scared you'd vote the wrong way? And you don't, <laughs> okay, because about three of you voted. Thank you so much. Okay. <laughs> the answer is it's in neither. And yet when you try to persuade people, they'll say, well, separation of church and state. Really? Where is that? Well, it's in the declaration. I've had, I've had hundreds of conversations like, no, it's not in there. Well, it's in the constitution. No, no it's not in there. I know it's in it. Well, it's in the first amendment. Oh, no, it's not. The First Amendment actually prohibits what you're actually saying. Well, where does it come from? The phrase separation of church and state, I want you to be able to be aware of following me right now and commit to memory what I'm saying in the next few seconds because you'll have hundreds of conversations with people who live by the cultural myth, the anti-biblical myth of the separation of church and state. It does not exist. The founding fathers did not recognize that. In fact, the number one source that our founding fathers quoted the most was the Bible. The second source they quoted most was other people quoting the Bible. Does that tell you right there? Where does the phrase separation of church state come from? It's borrowed from the writings of Thomas Jefferson, January the 1st, 1802, to a group of Danbury Baptists in Connecticut who were afraid the federal government, the government would come and encroach in their church life. And Thomas Jefferson wrote to them and said, no, the government has no right to do that, to ever encroach into church life. In fact, there's a wall of separation between us. So the government, he never said the church can't come into the government. That doesn't exist. He said the, the government cannot go into the church. Let me, let, me, let me translate that for you. The governor of California does not have the right to tell awakened church they cannot meet. They can't tell them that. Not constitutionally. The governor of California cannot tell Awakened Church, you can't sing. That is illegal according to the First Amendment. It's not there. So that got turned eventually on his head. People say, well, Thomas Jefferson, he wasn't a Christian. He was a deist. Well, part of his life, that's probably true. But let me tell you what this so-called deist, what he believed. This guy that they say believed in separation of church and state, you know what he did? In 1800, he approved worship services, weekly worship services, Christian worship services to be held every Sunday morning in the U.S. Capitol building. The rotunda was not yet built, the middle section, but in the statuary hall on the house side, if you've been to D.C., worship services were held in the U.S. Capitol every Sunday morning. The president of the United States, Thomas Jefferson, at the time rode his horse down Pennsylvania Avenue with a Bible tucked under his arm and attended those services where the Marine Corps band provided the worship music wow. in the U.S. Capitol. Those served, that was one of the largest churches in America at the time, by the way. Those services went from 1800 to 1869, that long a time. Now, I was a part of a ministry that had the privilege of restarting those services on July the 2nd, uh, July the 30th of 2014. We had the privilege of beginning weekly worship services again in, in the U.S. Capitol. Let me tell you one other thing, a cultural myth. Now, listen carefully. July the 2nd, 1954. July the 2nd, 1954. Something went through the Senate. They were overhauling the tax code. It's called the Johnson Amendment. It was by a voice vote only. Nobody is recorded of how they voted, and they did not discuss it. Lyndon Baines Johnson was the senator at the time, not president yet, senator from Texas. He was mad at two businessmen who opposed him through their not-for-profit corporation. 
So he got what's called the Johnson Amendment, passed through the Senate on a voice vote very quickly, which made it illegal for anybody with a 501c3, that's a not-for-profit corporation, that's a church, to oppose or endorse a candidate. The guys who were in charge of that with Johnson's staff said, we didn't even have churches in mind. We didn't think of them. We were just angry at those two businessmen. We wanted to shut down their not-for-profit organizations that had opposed us. But the IRS jumped on that and started saying, okay, pastors, you cannot endorse or oppose a candidate from the pulpit. Based on what? Wow. That's in violation of the First Amendment. Yeah. So you would think from 1954 to the present, somebody would challenge that in court. We've tried to. A group of 3,000 attorneys went together, got 4,000 pastors to violate the Johnson Amendment on purpose from their pulpit, endorse or oppose a candidate, record their sermon, mail it to the IRS, and said, sue me. And they would not do it. And they haven't to say because they knew that would lose in court. That is a violation of the First Amendment. But what developed in the minds of some pastors and some people is, oh, pastor, you better not talk about politics. That's exactly what the enemy wants you to believe. That would be horrific. Don't you dare preach those sections from the Word of God that talk about government because the enemy has claimed the political arena. They say, well, politics is dirty. That's because the clean people got out. That's the problem. We need people like you in. We need you coming into politics. We need you coming into government. We need you running for office. We need you activated. Bring Jesus into the voting booth. Some, some, some preachers will say, well, I'm not going to talk about it. I just preach Jesus. Well, that sounds good. I've been pastoring for a long time. I preach Jesus. I give an invitation to receive Christ at the end of virtually every sermon of my life. But we don't just preach Jesus. We preach what Jesus preached. What did he preach? The kingdom. What's the kingdom? That's when he has authority over everything. You know why? Because he's king. Now, my wife and I have had the privilege of meeting with presidents, prime ministers, and kings from nine countries. We've only met with one king. As we were walking into the palace of King Abdullah II in Jordan, a group of 12 of us, I realized I've never met a king. I've never been in a king's palace. Uh, he's not up for election every four years. His daddy was king before him. His son will probably be king after him. He owns it all. It's, it's all. This is a king. We don't have a grasp of that. We not only preach Jesus, we preach what Jesus preached, which is the kingdom, and he's the king, and everything is under his authority. There isn't a square inch anywhere that's not under the authority of the word of God. We proclaim that. The Bible commands you to pray for those in authority. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. But how can you pray for them if you don't even know their names? How many of you know both senators, the name of your congressman, the name of your state senator, the name of your assemblyman, and the name of your, your mayor? You can't pray for people whose names you don't know and nothing you know about them. You're violating the word of God. You're to pray for those in authority. You need to know them. We have a website loaded with information to help you pray for those in authority and get them in conformity with the ways and the word of God. Let me, let me take you another scripture, Romans chapter 13. Romans 13 says... Those in government are the ministers of God. Those in government, in leadership, the president, the cabinet, the, 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 the Congress, those in governmental leadership, they're the minister. The word is diakonos in the Greek. They're the ministers of God. They're to be his servants. They're to do what government is. God ordained government. It was his idea. He thought it up. It's supposed to function a particular, he, he thought of marriage, right? He put marriage together because marriage is supposed to function a particular way. He thought of the idea of procreation, having babies. There's a way a family is supposed to function. He thought of government. There's a way it's supposed to function. So they're supposed to be the ministers of God. Now, 
Let me ask you, what influence can you have on them being the ministers of God? Well, if you're in a monarchy, a king, you can't do much. If you're an oligarchy, where there's just a small group ruling, you can't do much. If you're in a totalitarian regime, you can't do much. If you're in communism, you can't do much. If you're in authoritarianism, you can't do much. But you're in a constitutional republic. Constitution, that's the law. The Supreme Court is not the law of the land. The Constitution is the law of the land. Make sure you understand that. And a republic means we, we, we send representatives to represent us. We're in a constitutional republic that votes democratically. That means 50% plus one. That's the environment you're in. Who gets to determine the government? We the people. We the people are the government. It's up to us to make sure that our government functions the way they're supposed to function. That's the calling upon us. We have a fun ministry. Our ministry is called Wellverse, same name as our book. And our ministry is, is a lot of fun. We get to meet with governmental leaders and help them understand to the extent that the Lord gives us the opportunity what it is to obey the scripture. We, 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 have, we have weekly Bible set. Now, COVID-19 has changed everything, so we're kind of regrouping after that. But we've been having uh, weekly Bible studies for members of Congress, specifically, Bible, we, we, and this is, our, this is what we study. The whole purpose, the reason I want to get you into this, because it'll drive you into this. Yeah. It'll drive you into that, to understand the biblical principles. We walk members of Congress through the constructs of well-versed, being biblically attuned on every governmental issue. So we have weekly Bible studies for members of Congress. Then we have a weekly Bible studies for people who work at the United Nations in New York City. And then we meet with ambassadors as God opens the doors. There's 193 member nations at the United Nations. We've met so far private. We're just a small ministry. We're not a large ministry. I don't want to oversell it or overspin it. We're a small ministry. But we've met so far with 93 of the 193 ambassadors at the United Nations privately, one, one at a time. And what do we do? We, we bring biblical principles of government. Let me give you an example. We're meeting with an ambassador of a small Muslim country. He doesn't know us, uh, we don't know him. We just know he's the ambassador, he knows nothing about us. So we're with a ministry called Well-Versed. I said, sir, your country has 40% unemployment. He says, yes. I said, sir, that's very painful. Your people are in a lot of pain in your nation. He says, yes, they are. I said, well, we're with well-versed, and we bring biblical principles of governance, which includes the economic principles for a nation to experience prosperity. Can I pray for you and your nation? He didn't turn me down. His nation is hurting, and he knows we're bringing answers. And so we try to establish relationship as God opens the door. My, I want my wife and Tiffany both. This is my wife, Rosemary. Rosemary, stand if you would. Come around. Come around. My wife, Rosemary. <laughs> and she's the co-founder of this ministry. We have, we have a small team, but one of our team members is with us, Tiffany Stan. Tiffany Espeson, Stan. Come around. Now, now, Tiffany doesn't let me say this, but if she gave me permission, here's what I would have said. Uh, she's a movie star. She was in the Avenger movies, Spider-Man, a lot of Disney movies, a lot of Nickelodeon, uh, a, a ton of Netflix movies. She does voiceovers in Hollywood. Google Tiffany Espenson on the red carpet. She started acting at age seven, bought her first condo at age 13, started college at age 15, knocked out a political science degree, is now working on a master's in theology. Okay? Now, that's what I would tell you if I was allowed to tell you, but I'm not allowed to, so I won't tell you that. <laughs> Here's what I'm calling you to be, Joshua and Caleb. I'm not saying it, suggesting it's going to be popular. I'm asking you to be biblically informed of what God's 
precious word says about the nature of government. I'm asking you to make sure you're registered. 25 million evangelicals in America are not even registered. Of those who are, 40% of those don't even bother to vote. You want to know why we have 66 million dead babies? It's not because of spineless judges or terrible legislators. It's not the abortionist, nor is it the woman seeking abortion. The problem, the blood is on the hands of the church that's been silent during this time. That's what has caused it to happen. What I love, by the way, go to our, web, our website is wellversedworld.org. Wellversedworld.org. And on that website, it'll show you how to pray for the governmental leaders all over the world. And secondly, if you'll go to one page, it'll show you a comparison of the Democratic platform with the Republican platform with the, and the third column's the most important, with the scriptures. What does God's word say about the 22 different topics, the Democratic platform, Republican platform, and then the scriptures we need to know to be informed of how government is supposed to function. One of the things I love about Awakened Church is Awakened Church, it's a no-nonsense church. It doesn't mess around. It tells you to take Jesus into your personal and private life. It tells you to take Jesus into your marriage. It tells you to take Jesus into your parenting, into your family life. It tells you to take Jesus into your business, into your school, into your financial life, into your relationship life, into your, into your, into your sexual, personal sexual life. This church teaches, teaches straight truth about sexual purity. What I'm asking you to do is take Jesus into the voting booth. This, and hear me clearly, this is not an issue of Republican versus Democrat. This is not even an issue of right versus left. This is an issue of right versus wrong and good versus evil. You need to understand that the war going on politically on earth is only a reflection of the heavenlies where there is angelic beings and demonic beings fighting over good versus evil. That's where the battle is. And that's what's manifesting here on the planet Earth in our midst. Let me, let me give an example. Let me give an example, concrete example. What did God first establish after he made humans? He said, male and female, I made it. That's number one. I made them male and female. What's the second thing? He created marriage. What's the third thing? Procreation, they started having babies. Okay, what did the enemy do? He took the least contested ground first and he started killing the babies. That's the first one. What did he do secondly? The enemy then attacked the definition of marriage to destroy it. What's the next one? He now takes on gender specificity. God said, I made you male and female, and now they're back to that one. Oh no, you have 56 genders, and besides that, you can call yourself whatever gender you happen to want to. That is a spiritual issue. That isn't merely political. It's reflected in the political realm, but the reality of that is a spiritual, that's a battle in the heavenlies being manifested here in the, in the spiritual realm. Why, why in the world is there such a battle right now in our nation, even over the Supreme Court appointment, a battle over one issue, one law, Roe v. Wade? Why over the issue of pro-life? Why? Because the first commandment God gave was be fruitful and multiply. The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. You get it? This is a spiritual battle going on in our midst. Let me ask you this. Why is it there's a battle? I can go to 193 nations of the world, and I can find the battle over marriage. The definition of marriage is in every country. Why is that the case? Not just here. It's a global phenomenon. Why is that? Let me walk you through something. I'm going to wrap up with this. 
I'm going to go, I'm going to go for a deep dive right now. So hang with me. Okay. Scuba gear. Let's go. We're going, we're going down now. Hang on carefully. Cause I want you to follow what I'm about to say. When you see the battle for marriage, it's not just some LBGT group out there waving their hands. This is being fought in the heavenlies, the demonic realm versus the angelic realm. Why? Why is that such a big deal to everybody? Let me ask you, is God male or female? The answer is neither. The writers in the scripture have a, have a hard time trying to figure out how to describe him. Sometimes they describe him with, with as, as male characteristics, as strength. Other times they describe him with feminine characteristics, tenderness, a, a womb birthing a babe, or a, a breast uh, nursing a newborn child. They use distinctly feminine characteristics because God cannot be described by their male or female, not at all. That being the case, since God's the image of God is the full spectrum of strong masculinity all the way to tender femininity. Since that's the nature of who God is, no male by himself is a full representation of the full spectrum of the full image of God. No female by herself is a full image, a full ex or spectrum of the full image of God. Are you, are you following me? That accounts in part why the two complementary halves of humanity try to come back together to form the oneness that they were originally. Now, let me walk you through this. The, the traditional view goes like this. God created Adam, capital A, Adam, and he took a rib and made Eve. That's what it looks like in the English. But if you'll go to the Hebrew text, let me take you to the Hebrew text as we, as we, as we wrap up. Give me just a couple more minutes here before we, before we have any music. He, you gave me more time, right? Okay, he gave me two, two more hours, sorry. Okay, okay, it wasn't that long. But, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna land this plane pretty quick, but here's, here's the way it goes. In the scripture, God created not Adam, capital A male. It says he created Adam. If you look at the footnotes in some of your Bibles, it'll say small a, Adam. It's a, that's a Hebrew word, it means humanity. God made humanity. Don't think of Adam the male yet. He created humanness, whatever that is. He looked at it and it's the only time in Genesis one and two, he said, that's not good. Every other time he says, that's good. He looked at that and said, it's not good. It's alone. The Hebrew is as one. I created something as one entity. Now God is capable of relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He was designed himself with a capacity for relationship, but humanity was created Adam as one with no capacity for relationship because it's just one. He says, that's not good. And so he removed, the word is not rib. That word is Selah in the Hebrew, T-S-E-L-A. Selah, it's used 40 times in the Old Testament. This is the only time it's wrongly transferred, translated rib. He removed half, a half or side. He removes Selah, half of it he removed. Now we have female and we have male. Now we have the Hebrew word for man. Now follow me carefully. For man is ish. The word for woman is isha. Bring up the screen right now if we can. Now look at the top of the screen if you would. In Hebrew, you read from right to left, right to left. So in Hebrew, the word is aleph, yod, sheen. Aleph, yod, sheen. Now that's the word for ish for man. How did man get called that way? Woman took one look and went ish and the name stopped. Okay. Now, and he looked at her and went, whoa, man. Okay. Now, so we have for woman, it's Aleph, Sheen, Hey. Yod, up, up in the upper one, Yod is kind of the letter Y. The Hey letter is like the letter H. If you take those two letters, those are the only two letters that are not in both words. 
For example, Yod is in the top one, but not in the second one. Hey is in the second one, but not in the top one. If you take those two letters out and put them together, Yod, Hey, they form the word Yahweh or the foundation for God, Yahweh. It's only as man and woman come together, stamped upon them is Yahweh, Yod, Hey, Vav, Hey, Yahweh, we mispronounce it Jehovah. It's a name, it's a name that is used for God in your Bible, your Old Testament, 6,800 times. As a man and a woman come together, the complementary halves of humanity, remember the Adam split apart? And now as the complementary halves of humanity come to in covenantal marriage, you're stamped with the name of God, the image of God, Yahweh is stamped upon you. Now let's go to the next slide. Look what happens in the next one. In the next one, we're gonna remove, we're gonna remove that word Yod on the right from man. We're gonna remove hey on the left from woman. And what do we have left? Aleph Shin. Aleph Shin is the word Esh or fire. Now let me ask you a question. Is fire a good thing or a bad thing? Well, it depends. If it comes through and burns down a thousand houses, that's very bad. But if it's running the air conditioner, the heating, the lights, it's cooking your meal, the ignition on your car, fire is a very good thing when properly controlled or parametered. When a man and a woman comes together, there's a certain level of appropriate fire. Um, mm, there's something there that draws magnetically. Every guy is getting it. The women are going, oh boy, here we go again. Okay, okay. So there's, there's fire. Now, let's go to the next slide. I want you to see what happens. This is the word for covenant. When a, when, a, when a nation covenants with God or a covenant occurs between old tribal chiefs or when a husband and a wife covenant together. This is not a contract that can be busted and broken. This is a covenant that's forever. And so here's the word for covenant, Brit. Now what we're gonna do in this Hebrew, the Hebrew's on top, right to left, we're gonna split the word apart and watch what happens. Here's when we split the word Brit or covenant apart and we put the Aish fire in the middle of it. We now have a word called Bereshit. What is Bereshit? What I'm making the case for right now is the fire, the attraction, that draws a man to a woman, a woman to a man. When placed within the context of a covenant, when parameted by a covenant, that covenant is called marriage. That is God's desire and intention. That word Bereshit, by the way, the Jews don't call the first book in the Bible Genesis like we do. They call it Bereshit. What does Bereshit mean? It means in English, in the beginning. Those are the opening three words of your Bible. Written in the opening three words of your Bible are the, is the very, this was taught to me, all this was taught to me by Jewish rabbis, by the way. In the first opening word of your Bible is the components of the very nature of how precious marriage is in the context of covenant, the fire that comes when a husband and wife, a man and a woman want to come back together in the act of marriage. And God ordained it that way. This is so special to him. That's just, the Bible begins with a marriage in Genesis. It closes with a wedding of a bride and groom in, in, in a, a Revelation. We don't have time to go into Revelation, so I'll have to skip that for right now. Except to say, God cares deeply about the nature of marriage. Why? Because it's a demonstration of his image upon the earth. So if I were Satan, I would destroy marriage. I would destroy it by adultery. Of fornication, I would destroy it by pornography, I would destroy it by divorce, I would destroy it by homosexuality, I would destroy it by every way I could, I would destroy it because marriage is a depiction of the image of God upon the earth. 
That's why this is a battle in the realm of the spirit. This is only manifested politically. This is, this is little leaks compared to what's going on in the heavenlies right now. But we're the Joshua and Caleb to rise up and fight this battle spiritually and win this. Let, let, me, let, me, let me finish with this. This last scripture, the scripture I started with, if when the foundations are being destroyed, what are the righteous to do? That's one rendition of the text. Let me give you another rendition of the text based on the Hebrew. It can have this meaning. When the foundations are being destroyed, what is the righteous one doing? In the midst, of, see the difference? The first one sounds like, oh, when the foundations are being destroyed, oh my, we're hand-raking. What are the righteous supposed to do? That's not what it's saying. When the foundations are being destroyed, what is the righteous one? What's God up to? Join him. Be a Joshua and Caleb. Don't be like the other 10. Stand firm. Stand for truth. Be loving, be winsome, be tender, be kind, but don't back away from Facebook, Twitter. Don't back, back away from Instagram. Stay bold. Stay loving, stay tender, don't be accusatory. Stay with concepts, principles, not attacking persons ever. Because you want to, and, and, and tell them how much you love them and appreciate them. But don't back away in the battle. I'm asking you to be a Joshua and Caleb. They weren't popular when they first gave that report. But we all respect them now, because they were right. I ask you to take Jesus into the voting booth. You can't take Jesus into the voting booth if he's not in you. I want to make sure he's in you right now. Listen, surveys in America show that most of the people, almost 60% of Americans, think that they can get to heaven by doing more good things than bad things. They think it's going to be weighed like this. Let me ask you, if you were to stand before God right now, what reason would you give him why he should let you into his heaven? Most people in America still say, well, I did more good. I didn't kill anybody. I didn't steal anybody. I didn't steal from anybody. I'm basically, I was a pretty good person. It's going to be depart. I don't know you. There's only one thing that gets you into the heaven. If you stand before God, what reason would you give him why he should let you into his heaven? It's going to be one thing. You're going to point to the cross of Christ Jesus. Because let me tell you, heaven's perfect and you're imperfect. He can't let you in your condition. Unless the one who is perfect hung on the cross for your sins and a great exchange took place. And I was assigned with the perfection of Christ, the robes of righteousness. He took my robe of sinfulness. He took my imperfection. It went to him. I was now confused but purposely confused with the person of Christ and his, his righteousness is assigned to me as I stand before God and say, come on in, come on in. We get to heaven by one reason, acknowledging we're sinners. We confess our sins. Confess means to be in agreement with God. The sin is sin. Number two, we repent of our sin. Repent means I'm going this way. I turn 180 degrees and go this way. So I confess, I repent. I say, Jesus, you died for my sins. I acknowledge you as Lord and Savior of my life. For somebody here right now, this is your moment to pray and receive him. Stand right now, quietly, reverently to your feet. Close your eyes. Everyone standing right now, I want to lead you in a prayer. I'm going to ask everybody to pray the prayer out loud together, but this is specially designed for those of you who need to pray to receive him as Lord and Savior. So pray out loud with me. Dear Jesus, Dear Jesus I, need you I need you as my Savior and Lord. My Savior and Lord. I ask you to come into my life, into my, into my heart. Make me the kind of person you want me to be. I confess my sins. I repent of my sins. I turn from them. I declare you are my savior and you are my Lord. In Jesus name I pray, amen. No one looking around, all eyes closed. If you prayed that prayer with me for the purpose of receiving Christ, raise your hand wherever you are. Raise your hand, raise it high. Okay, good, good, good. Thank you, thank you. Any others, any others? Okay, those with your hands raised, look at me. Look, those with your hands raised, look at me. The rest keep your eyes closed. The prayer you prayed is the most important prayer you've ever prayed. I'm seeing a whole bunch of hands. Look to my left over here, to your right. It says the response lounge. Desiree, I believe it is, is over here. 
and they want to greet you and meet you and encourage you. It's really important. As soon as we dismiss, go right over there and say, hey, I raised my hand. What do I need to know? And they'll bless you. Well, my time is up. I talked as fast as I could. If you'd listen faster, I'd have been done long before now. Thank you so much. Bless you. Thanks for listening. To find out more about our locations, team, and what we do here at Awakened Church, go to awakenedchurch.com.